Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, to another the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as a spirit, for just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, and there may be, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are, are, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Father God, we come to you this morning. You are sovereign. You are Lord over all. Uh, Lord, in you can we put our trust alone. And Lord, we, we just come to you um, asking that you would draw our hearts to you amidst all the confusion that we've seen this week, all the evil, Lord, we, particularly this week, we look up the shooting in Uvalde with uh, so many people, innocent people just dead, and for so no, no reason, we lift up the, uh, Lord, the families of those that are grieving, that are grieving, the family, the friends, the community, the town, and our nation, Lord, as we grapple with what to do with this as we just see evil um, staring us straight on. Lord, we, we know you are above all, that you're more powerful and stronger than all. And uh, Just help us draw near to you to understand it. We ask your comfort to those uh, that are grieving for your healing. Lord, we ask that you would give um, wisdom to the leaders that make decisions that uh, could help future shootings, keep, keep them from happening. And Lord, we uh, just uh, lift up Tommy as he uh, brings forth the word today. You would uh, be with him, and you would open our hearts to hear what he's prepared for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Mercy House. Glad that you are all here with us this morning. It's been a really heavy, heavy week uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, so in addition to the horrific events that took place in Uvalde, which um, Steve, one of our pastors, just prayed uh, for last Sunday, there was also a report that was, was released via an independent investigation that revealed uh, long-suspected sexual abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention, which is our denomination, the denomination that we're a part of. Um, and so if you are a regular attender, if, if you have put your email into the system, then you should have received an email this past week um, just with some of our thoughts and comments about it, along with some resources um, as you learn more about and navigate this news. Um, so there's a lot that I want to say, um, but I, I've really tried to distill, I think, the most important items, um, and then we'll get to the, the Word of God, which is what's really going to give us hope um, as we move forward. Um, so just three things. One, I think I just want to articulate that we grieve with the survivors and are absolutely heartbroken um, by what has been detailed in the report and the investigation. As I read through the 280 pages of that report, I had to stop almost every 10 minutes just to pray and ask Jesus to just come back. Um, it's some really terrible things that have come to light, and I just, I know that your elders and your staff are also similarly grieving and mourning uh, this report, and so if you're experiencing sadness, anger, frustration, like those are appropriate responses, and I want to encourage you um, that you're not alone in that, and that our church uh, is continuing, and at least beginning this process of mourning uh, and grieving. The second thing I want to communicate is that we're going to wait uh, until the SBC responds uh, to this report officially at their annual meeting, which is next month, uh, before our leaders make a recommendation to you, the church, regarding um, how we should proceed as a church. Um, so this is an unprecedented level of transparency, um, and the hope with that transparency is that it would bring a level of accountability and repentance that can lead to redemption, um, and the SBC's response will help us determine what our future with the SBC is going to look like. So we want to wait and see how they respond before we make any decisions. 
Um, and lastly, whether we decide to stay in the SBC or leave the SBC, that's going to be a decision that our church needs to make altogether. So this is not the elders saying we will continue in the SBC or we will leave the SBC. This is something that our members will take ownership of as we make that decision together. So in the coming months, we're going to be setting aside dedicated time outside of all of our other meetings regarding the budget and the new fiscal year and the town hall. Um, we want to set aside specific time to dedicate to having these conversations together as a church body. So those are the three main things I want to communicate to you. Uh, between the tragedy in Uvalde and this report, our community is in a very tender spot right now. Um, our elders are going to be in the back after the sermon just to be available to pray with you, to have conversations with you, to support you if you just want to have someone to talk to. And we're also going to be meeting in the conference room that's upstairs in the back there at 12 uh, just to pray. So if anyone wants to join us to do that, we're going to do that after the service at noon. Let me pray for us now before we jump into God's word. Father, in moments like this, there is um, a reminder that there is no other place to look other than to you and to your word, and so that's what we do now. Father, help us to feel and understand the unity that we have as your body. Father, I pray that your word would bring hope and encouragement and peace and comfort in the ways that no human mouth can. Lord, we need you to speak powerfully into our hearts this morning, and we pray that you would. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one from underneath uh, your chair and to follow along. We're kind of starting a new tradition here. We're not going to have all of the slides for the scripture that we're preaching on um, on the screens. So we want to encourage you to like look along with the passage yourself. Any other place where we do references outside of where our passage is, uh, that will be on the screen above you. This thing keeps rocking back and forth. Sorry. So to understand uh, this passage is really, uh, the, the main point of it is to help us understand what spiritual gifts are. I'm sure you've heard about spiritual gifts in the past, but really this passage looks at uh, who has spiritual gifts, how do we receive spiritual gifts, what exactly are the spiritual gifts, and then what is their purpose. So those are the things we're going to tackle this morning, and we're going to jump in with verse 1 in chapter 12. Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Paul turns the focus of his letter to spiritual gifts, and, and he reminds the Corinthians where they came from, and he's saying, when you were pagans, that word pagan is translated as, as Gentile or non-Jew, when you weren't a Jew, uh, which is important because as Paul has mentioned earlier in chapter 10, their conversion into the Christian faith made it so that they, they were no longer Gentiles or non-Jews, but they had been grafted into the nation of Israel, into God's family. So he's saying, when you were pagans, which implies that they no longer are. 
Now, this is important. It's an important distinction, and we'll get to why in a minute, but the way that Paul wants the Corinthians uh, to, to know or to think is that their faith in Jesus defines them in an entirely new way. So Christianity for them is not something that they do. It's something that they became. So they're, they're not pagans who happen to practice Christianity any more than like an orphan who is adopted into a family uh, remains an orphan, but they just happen to have a family, right? The orphan becomes a child in that family, and the title of orphan is completely voided from their identity. So in the same way, the pagan becomes a child of God. This is a new identity. It's a new reality, which is why Paul can say, when you were pagans. One of the reasons why Paul reminds them of this new identity and this new reality for them is because it's very critical to help them understand spiritual gifts. And most importantly, that spiritual gifts are for Christians. So that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, this is an important starting point because of how entrenched Corinth was as a culture in the supernatural uh, and have, having supernatural and spiritual experiences. And I don't think today we're actually that far off. We, we live in an age that encourages spirituality, and it might not necessarily encourage mainstream religions or organized religion, but especially in more liberal and progressive areas like New England, like spiritual enlightenment and spiritual exploration is something that's encouraged. So phrases like, I had a spiritual moment, are not scoffed at, nor is, I'm working on my own spiritual journey. It's a legitimate endeavor, and people in our communities, in our cultures, are praised and encouraged to do so. But what Paul is saying as he turns his attention toward talking about things that might dip into worldly spirituality, that is, having kind of apparent similarities on the surface of what the world might categorize as being spiritual or mystical, that he doesn't want the Corinthians to be misinformed or confused. He's telling them that what he's about to talk to is distinctly Christian. So it's not a Christian label that's slapped on a pagan tradition. He's not saying what you might call fortune-telling is actually Christian prophecy. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying what you might call like shamanistic healing rituals. We actually call the gift of healing. This is something completely different. So while the Corinthians come from this background of being, in verse 2 there, the second part, led astray to mute idols when they were pagans and existing in a world of kind of hyper-spirituality, it was not like anything that Paul is about to talk about. They were led astray, and perhaps into spirituality and mysticism, but they worshipped mute idols. That's Paul's verbiage there, which can also be translated as dumb idols. Another place that talks about this uh, is in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 5, and this is God talking about the other nations and the other gods that they ran after. And starting in verse 5, he says, Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. So in a way, Paul is saying, throw out everything you think you know about spiritual things. Uh, you who were being spiritual, when you were being spiritual, you were led astray by a scarecrow in a cucumber field. But you are now led by the God of the universe. And so Paul's purpose is to inform them, to teach them. And the place he starts is this in verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. 
and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So this is the first and really only qualifier that Paul gives to the Corinthians regarding these spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts, as we discern them, whether or not they are actually Christian spiritual gifts or if they're dabbling back into pagan spirituality or the demonic occult, he says, does, does what they're experiencing make much of Jesus and does it position Jesus as God? So if there are those who are claiming to be using spiritual gifts and spiritual abilities and they're demonstrating some sort of spiritual power and they blaspheme Jesus while they're doing it, then that's a major red flag. But if they're communicating faith, and that's what Paul means when he points to a person being able to say that Jesus is Lord, so that's not like a special incantation or something that, that has magic in those words themselves, but the understanding here is that those who profess that truth have experienced regenerative, regenerative grace in their hearts, and as they have put their faith in Jesus, the Spirit enters into them, and they're able to declare, to profess, and confess that Jesus is God, that He is the Christ. So it's that person whom this conversation regarding spiritual gifts is aimed toward. So what Paul's doing is he's acknowledging that spiritual and even supernatural things exist out there in that world, in the world. And talking about spiritual gifts does not account for everything in the spiritual and supernatural world, but he's putting a fence around his conversation in chapter 12. Spiritual gifts are for followers of Christ, and that's what we're going to be talking about here. So that's whose spiritual gifts are for. They're for Christians. But how do Christians receive them? Look at these next verses starting in Verse 4, now there are various gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are various, uh, th there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, in these verses, Paul is going to answer how do we receive these spiritual gifts, and he's going to begin answering what exactly those gifts are. But before we even get there, I think there's another point regarding who they're for. So we know based on this previous section that, they are, uh, that Christians get these spiritual gifts, but then you might wonder, well, which Christians? Like the mature Christians, the ultra-righteous Christians? In verses 4 through 6, as Paul is talking about the variety of the different gifts, he says in the second half of verse 6 there, says, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. In everyone. So who gets the spiritual gifts? Christians, but not just some Christians or the elite Christians. Everyone who is a follower of Christ, who by faith has received the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of them, has at least one spiritual gift. That's really awesome. But how do we get them? Like, what starts these spiritual gifts within us? Is there like a training class, or do we need to like unlock a power from within, or do some sort of ritual? Well, for this, I think we need to hop back to the beginning of that section in verse 4. So right at the beginning there, Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Paul uses the word gift very purposefully here. Gifts are things that are not earned. Gifts are not wages that are due. Gifts aren't to be bragged about or boasted, and gifts are to be utilized and appreciated. That's what a gift is. Gifts are given freely, graciously, out of an abundance of love and generosity. 
And we know that this is the mindset that Paul wants the Corinthians to have as they think about and practice these spiritual abilities because he keeps hammering down this point. Jump down to verse 7. To each is given. So that's the same idea. Gifting, given, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit. And then he goes on to list these spiritual abilities. This is how we get this idea, this name of spiritual gifts. It's not like a, a phrase that's exactly in the Bible, but we get this from these verses, that they are given to us, and they're given through the Spirit, and they are of the Spirit. And the way that we get these distinctly Christian spiritual abilities is to receive it as a gift from our loving Father in heaven through the Spirit that dwells within us. Now, this is not always necessarily immediate. Uh, Paul talks about desiring certain gifts later on as he talks about these, these things. So there's this idea that we can get more gifts or, or gifts later on. Some gifts can be dormant, maybe unrecognized. We need to discover them and, and identify them, which is something that we do in the context of Christian community. As we live together, we can affirm each other's gifts. We can uh, help each other mature and grow as we use these gifts that God has given us, but the fact that it's a gift means that there's no initiation or task that we need to do in order to receive them. That's the nature of a gift. You don't do anything to deserve a gift. It is graciously given and then humbly received. What exactly are these spiritual gifts then? And Paul doesn't go into great detail about each and every gift here. He merely lists them out. And what you see as you read chapter 12 is him setting up for the Corinthians how to use them and what is the healthy mindset that, that they ought to have while they exercise these gifts. But he does identify them. So this is where the church comes in. <laughs> We've done a whole sermon series on spiritual gifts, uh, and there are many, many, many resources out there which provide comprehensive whole Bible understandings on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In the back, you'll see a table in the middle which has a questionnaire on it, which is just to help you identify and discern your gifts. But this questionnaire should not be replacing engaging other members and other believers in the Christian community here at Mercy House. So ideally, you'll have people who know you, who know your heart, who know what you are built to do, who can help you identify what your gifts are. And so this is going to be the best way to learn what your gifts are as you pray that God would reveal them and as you communicate with others, hey, what is my gifting? What gifts do you see in me? So I, I just want to temper your expectations. We don't have time to dive this morning into all these gifts. There are 11 of them, but I, I will fly through them very briefly. And here are a few things to know before I do. So the first thing is that spiritual gifts are talked about in the New Testament in four major places. Uh, two of which are right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and the other two are in Romans chapter 12 in verses 6 through 8, and then Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. So these are the major places. There are other single gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament, but these are kind of the, the places that list several out um, and which a lot of commentators will use as, as, as a list of these giftings. The second thing I want to point out is that some gifts are mentioned multiple times across these lists, so they cross over, while others uh, only list, uh, one, some of these gifts are only listed once in some of these places. So there's no like master list. This is a cumulative list that we piece together from different places in the New Testament. And lastly, what is universal in all four of these passages 
And the reason why we call them spiritual gifts is that it is articulated that these are given to us by God and they are manifested through the Holy Spirit. So with that, let's look at these gifts, starting in verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Now jump down to verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Let me summarize here. This is kind of like a game of trying to identify all the different gifts. What we see in these two lists are the gifts of wisdom and knowledge, uh, of faith, of, uh, I'm sorry, gifts of healing, gifts of working of miracles, prophecies, the ability to distinguish between spirits, various kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues, apostleship, helping, administration, so let's go through them briefly. There's a lot here, and I, I want to give you a quick, you might have this gift if for each of these gifts, and you should see them on that list there on your screens as we move along. Just, uh, these are not ranked in any certain order. I'm not talking about the most important ones first. These are just as they appear in Scripture. So the first is the gift of wisdom and knowledge. You might see these two talked about in isolation, but biblically, they're almost always seen and used in tandem, especially in the Old Testament. And they're used in reference almost exclusively to teaching. And so that's kind of the idea. Having the gift of wisdom and knowledge is having the ability by the Spirit to comprehend the Word of God and to communicate it effectively and apply it specifically so that the hearer is edified. So you may have the gift of teaching or the gifts of wisdom and knowledge if you gravitate toward joyfully helping others understand things. And if you yourself find the process uh, and challenge of learning new things actually fun and soul-filling. So that's the case. You might have the gift of wisdom and knowledge or the gift of teaching. The second is the gift of faith. All Christians have faith. We're called to have faith. But this is not talking about saving faith. But some have an extraordinary and exceptional amount of faith, of trusting God, uh, the God of the Bible, and His Word. Now, faith is hard to describe, but it's easy to see. It's easy to see. For instance, in the book of Acts, when the church is establishing the office of deacons to help serve the church, this is what we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 3 through 5. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So what we see is this man, Stephen, being singled out as someone who was full of faith. Now, how would we know that? If Faith is something that's invisible and kind of in your heart. Like, how can you see that he's a man full of faith? Well, I think in part, yes, 
Faith is invisible, but faith affects the ways that we interact with the world around us. So contrary to what the world might say, faith is not private. And it's apparent here, in the way that this man Stephen interacted with the world, it's apparent that he had tremendous and extraordinary faith. It was just seen by those around him which was proven to be correct. As you continue reading on in the book of Acts, he becomes the first martyr as he preaches the gospel to a crowd that just wants to kill him. And he does that until he is stoned to death. You see that right in the next chapter, in chapter 7. So, you may have the gift of faith if you find yourself gravitating toward trusting in the Lord and his promises, even in, maybe especially in, dire circumstances. You may have the gift of faith if people in the world call you optimistic and positive all the time, or if Christians tell you straight up, wow, you have a lot of faith, then you might have the gift of faith based on how you're interacting with the world around you. Next is gifts of healing. The gifts of healing are pretty straightforward um, and fairly easy to identify. If if you and your prayers and and kind of your pleading to the Lord for healing in other people around you, maybe in yourself, um, and, and you've seen those be answered, then you might have the gift of healing. The gift of working of miracles. So some of these gifts overlap a little bit, and Paul's purpose of this list is not to create like a precise or technical list of spiritual gifts. So the working of miracles could include bringing sight to the blind. It could be the ability uh, to, to, to see someone who is uh, walking when they were once lame, which c- you could argue would fit under healing, but they are not any less like miraculous. So simply put, however... Uh, you might have the gift of miracles if you find supernatural and extraordinary things happening around you. Perhaps a completely unexplainable outside of the miraculous working of God and that that is happening for the good of others and for the glory of Christ. So that's gifts of miracles. The gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is described uh, by commentator Thomas Schreiner as communicating revelation from God in spontaneous utterance. We're going to spend a lot more time uh, talking about prophecy in chapter 14, but the gift of prophecy is having specific revelatory insight into things that you would not otherwise know unless that was made known to you by God. So this is not always just telling the future, but as we see in chapter 14 later on, having an awareness into the secrets that are in a person's heart and the revelation of which is edifying and Christ-exalting when that's communicated to somebody. So you may have the gift of prophecy if you found yourself speaking into others' lives and having insight and knowledge that go beyond with what you, quote, like, should know. Uh, And so if someone says to you, who told you that as you're talking with them, or how did you know that? If you're communicating something that just kind of cuts to their heart, which is what we see in chapter 14, then you may have the gift of prophecy. Again, more on that as we get to chapter 14. Next is the ability to distinguish between spirits. So this gift is the discernment of what is true and what is false. So not just having a strong moral compass, I don't think that's what this is talking about, but having an awareness of what is right and what is wrong through the lens of the gospel and God's word. So people with this gift are able to spot false teaching And of course, as with most of these gifts, we want all of the members of our church to be able to be equipped to do this, but those with this gift can do it almost instinctively, instinctively spot out false teaching. 
The gift of various kinds of tongues. This is another one that's going to be communicated and dived into more in chapter 14. The gift of tongues and what it is, is highly debated. And so there are a couple ways to look at it biblically. And one is what we see in Acts chapter 2, where you have Christians from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, uh, speaking different languages, yet they're able to communicate with one another. And so that communication is directed toward one another, which is in contrast to what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And that is communication directed to God and worship. And no one actually knows what that person is saying. So this might be why Paul uh, phrases it as various kinds of tongues. So one iteration of the gift could be the gift that allows us to speak or understand a foreign language and to communicate with people like we see in Acts chapter 2. But another iteration could be communicating with God in what is perhaps like a heavenly language, one that is incomprehensible by us unless, unless we have the gift of interpretation, which is next. Uh, but this idea is not that far-fetched. If we consider that even though English is the universal language of the world today, it's probably uh, not the language in heaven. Like God communicated within the Trinity. He spoke creation into existence. And so the implication that there is some sort of language, and it's likely not English or Spanish or French or Latin, but some other language... So in either of these cases, whether the tongues are speaking worldly languages to other people or divine languages to the Lord, there is something supernatural that's happening, and the Holy Spirit is empowering it, just like all of these other gifts. And so you might have the gift of tongues. And this is a very, like, crude, uh, not crude, uh, kind of a a broad definition um, to at least start you thinking in the ballpark. You may have the gift of tongues if people point out to you that you are not speaking English when you think you are, or if you are able to understand people when others around you cannot, okay? Some of you are like, wow, I think I might have the gift of tongues, because that's like speaking into your experience. Others of you are like, that's a little weird and crazy. That probably means you don't have the gift of tongues, probably, if you've never been told that before. doesn't mean that you don't have it, but this is just a way to think about your experiences within the church as we move forward talking about spiritual gifts. And that should be true for all of these. As, as I'm kind of talking about what they are, they might be like, oh, wow, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can identify with that. Or it doesn't, and that's okay. Next is the gift of interpretation of tongues. So this is kind of in tandem with that last one. Having this gift is in line with that second iteration of the gift of tongues that we just talked about, uh, which Paul dives into a lot more in chapter 14. But the interpretation of tongues is the ability to understand those who are speaking in that heavenly language that's directed at God in worship. So if you want to look on ahead at chapter 14, not right now, because we're in chapter 12 right now, but later on, if you're really curious, you can jump ahead and learn more about those both in chapter 14. All right. Apostleship. So this is another debated spiritual gift. And I'll tell you briefly why it's debated. In the New Testament, the office of apostle is determined by two things. One, you had to see the resurrected Jesus, like in person. And two, you had to be specifically commissioned by him. So there are a few places that speak into this, one of which is in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. The other two are right here in this book, in 1 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3, as Paul's kind of laying out what it looked like for him to become an apostle. So the official office of apostle was not one that continued on after this. So apostles who were martyred or who died, they were not replaced by other Christian men. 
And Paul communicated, uh, to, communicated that he is the last of the apostles. So you see this at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 8. However, the word apostle has multiple uses. So similar to how the word deacon or um, diakonos has a general meaning of servant in addition to the technical office of deacon, so the word apostle has a general meaning of messenger or representative in addition to the office. So there are times when that word diakonos is used simply to mean a servant. So Jesus himself is called a deacon uh, or, or a servant in Romans 15.8. It doesn't mean that he was like a deacon uh, as, as an office or technical role of deacon, but that he was a servant, as opposed to more technical uses of the word deacon when it's referring to an office within the church. And similarly, there are times when the word apostle is used to simply mean a messenger or a representative and not referring to the office of apostle. So Christ himself is communicated as an apostle in Hebrews 3.1. Barnabas is someone whom Luke identifies as an apostle. So he's not an actual in the office of apostle, but you see in Acts chapter 14, verse 14, that he's referred to as a messenger, a representative of the gospel, and that word apostle is used. Epaphroditus, whom Paul describes as an apostle uh, to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. So all this to say... Some would argue that the gift of apostleship doesn't exist because the office of apostleship doesn't exist. Others would say that the gift of apostleship is not necessarily speaking to the technical office of an apostle, but the more general sense of being a messenger, a representative of the gospel. So functionally, the apostles did have apostolic authority, but they also were practically messengers of the gospel, specifically to new and unreached areas. And so what I would argue is this view right here, that there are some who have the gift that enables them to pioneer the gospel into unreached places and to plant churches like the New Testament apostles did and to do the work of an apostle but not having the office of apostle. So you may have the gift of apostleship if you gravitate toward evangelism, if you have an extra tender heart toward the unreached, and you have the giftings and the mindset of maybe what you could consider like a spiritual entrepreneur, someone who gathers and wants to build the church. Okay, two more. The gift of helping. The gift of helping, also understood as serving, so that word is diaconia, which is the root of diakonos or deacon. And we're all called to serve, but some in particular gravitate toward the practical aid of others. So you might have the gift of helping or service if you just really like to meet practical needs, and if you find yourself comfortable working behind the scenes to get things done. Lastly, the gift of administration. This is also translated and understood as forms of leadership. So those with this gift have a mind and a skill set to organize and to mobilize, to be able to provide directional vision and, and a heart to bring others along with them. You likely have the gift of administration or leadership if you can identify spiritual goals and if you have a desire to shepherd people toward those goals. So those are the 11 spiritual gifts that are mentioned in this passage. 
We're going to be diving deeper into tongues and prophecy. Uh, Paul dives into them deeper because they're a little contentious in Corinth. I think they're a little confusing for us today, so that's helpful for us as well. Uh, I want to encourage you to grab one of the questionnaires at that back table to get you started, but I want you to know that those questionnaires are not the ideal way to figure out your gifts. So what I want to encourage you to do is to sit down with your brothers and sisters with people who know you, who have seen you live life, who have seen you follow Jesus, pray that God would reveal your gifts to you and then ask your brothers and sisters, what gifts do you see in me? It's going to be the best way to do it. I think that's the way that God calls us to do it. And those questionnaires are going to fall short. They might be helpful, help you start thinking in a certain way, but these gifts are to be figured out in the context of community. And it's really important that we figure out these gifts within the church body because these gifts are not for you to use in isolation from the church body. So you're not going to grab that questionnaire and run to your house and figure out your spiritual gifts, and that's it. Paul has this in mind as he continues on in this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 12 and 13. Paul says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul introduces this metaphor of a body as he talks about the church. And he does this primarily to communicate the diversity and the variation of members within the body, but also the unity and the collective identity of that body. So though we are very different in this room, and we have different gifts, we have different passions, we have different heart leanings, and what I mentioned earlier, like gravitational pulls on our hearts, we are all together one body in Christ. Now, diversity and variation often leads to several responses, and I think two of them are addressed here in, this, in these verses. When we're in a group with lots of people that are very different, have different giftings, and there's a lot of diversity, we can experience either self-deprecation, so that is valuing ourselves lower than we ought to, or we experience pride, that is valuing ourselves higher than we should. And Paul addresses both of these in these next two sessions, sections. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body." So here is some direct encouragement for those who might see less value in themselves because of who they are or because of their giftings. The idea that Paul is trying to instill into the church at Corinth is that there is an incredible diversity in the body of God. There are people of all ages, all ethnicities, all different giftings, 
And in that diversity, we tend to, as broken, sinful humans, place value and priority on certain giftings or on certain age demographics. And so it makes sense, at least in our understanding of our own brokenness, that we might maybe be ashamed of our gifts when it's compared to other more important or more valuable gifts. And I put those in quotes because that's not real. And Paul says that that's the wrong way to think about it. And the idea is to think less about individual value and thinking about yourself as, oh, I'm too young or, oh, I'm too old or, oh, I don't have enough life experience or, oh, I don't have those giftings that go up front or, oh, I just like to be in the background. Like, that is a, 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 an unhealthy way to look at it. What, but what Paul is trying to communicate is helping us think about the collective function of the body. Paul is saying that variety is not about God's valuing of some people over others, but it speaks to the dynamic nature of the body as he designed it. So a couple weeks ago, we had our children come up front, and I asked them uh, several questions, but one of which I asked them, I said, um, if we are all, I'm sorry, I asked them why we didn't look the same. Like, why were we different? Why, Why did God make us different? And one of the children said, if we were all the same, we wouldn't know who everyone was. I loved that answer. I love that answer because it reveals that that child knew in their heart that God created us to be distinct and different. Like, that's like very important to how we were created. He didn't create all noses. He didn't create all hands or all mouths. The beauty of variation and diversity in the body is purposeful. It's purposeful. Just look at verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So we need to be careful how we value parts of the body. We need to be careful of not viewing people in isolation from the body. This is yet another instance where we see that God is designing us, has designed us to live in community with one another. We are not designed to be single-celled organisms living off by ourselves, but as a collective body together. It's not just wisdom that we band together. This is not one of those lame teamwork posters. This is like teamwork makes the dream work that you see in the office or at school. This is revealing that it is God's sovereign design that each of us have been ordained to serve in a specific capacity, regardless of age, regardless of experience, regardless of giftings, that is unique to our giftings as part of the collective body of Christ. You might be saying, man, I'm not an eye, I'm just a lousy thumb. I'm just a lousy thumb. And what Paul is saying is, I think he's saying, sure, you are just a thumb, but a thumb by itself is not very helpful. Like, thumbs aren't designed to just float around by themselves out in nature. You're part of the body, and the body needs a thumb. And so some of you might honestly feel isolated and inferior because you are not participating as a member of the collective body. You might be a thumb that's floating around out there. Paul's saying, come be a part of the body. Mercy I hope that this leaves you feeling encouraged and empowered. This church does not run on leadership. And what I do from the front is not any more significant than any other part of the body. Do you believe that? 
Do, you, do I believe that? I do. Do you understand that without you as the body, if you are not living out your calling as members of the body with your unique gifts that God has ordained and given to you to be a part of the body, I can stand here by myself week in and week out and use my gift and our church can just remain stagnant until it just dies. That can happen if the body is not being the body. That means that my gift is not useful in isolation. In order for the body to be healthy, all of its members, that's you guys, all of its ears, the nose, the hands, the feet, the shoulders, the legs, they all need to be functioning. So, like, man, if we could be a body that is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, functioning with all of its members, like, firing off the way that God designed them to fire off, like, that is a beautiful picture of church. And that's what we endeavor to do here at Mercy House. Humility goes both ways. It brings up those who think too lowly of themselves, but it also brings down those who think too highly of themselves. Look at these next verses in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There are two things happening here. Paul is rebuking those in the Corinthian church who pridefully are excluding members of the body. And he's helping the church realize that they have no idea how the members are meant to function together. They don't, they don't understand it. So remember, Corinth has a lot of spiritual and cultural baggage as a church. They are a culture uh, that has deep pagan roots, that's very spiritual, and they're also highly class-oriented. So what that creates in tandem is that they would have more value, they would ascribe more value to certain gifts that are going to be more visible and more showy. So the gifts of prophecy and of tongues, along with teaching and miracles, and that's why Paul kind of doubles down on those. And in their sinful pecking order, they would have dismissed, quote-unquote, lesser gifts like maybe helping or service or faith, those that are done in the background and not in front of people. They would likely go so far as to say, we don't actually need those gifts, but Paul calls them out in this. We're less value-centric here today. Um, I, I think we see the value of gifts in a relatively healthy way compared to the Corinthians, but we tend to exclude members nonetheless. Nonetheless. It's not based on giftings or the giftings perceived value. We're not as value-centric or class-conscious here today, but we are comfort-centric. And what I mean by that is people that we exclude are going to be those who we see as difficult, as challenging. In case you don't know, our church is filled with difficult and challenging people. I am one of those difficult and challenging people. We're sinners before we are saints, and some of us here, including myself, can be hard 
to love. And this is a place where we tend to, as a church mercy house, exclude people. Those who might not get along with us very well, those who might think differently or set off like the harmony of the group or who just give off bad vibes, but we are not to do this. It is not the gospel. Mercy House, at the heart of it, we are not simply neighbors here to just smile and wave to one another on a Sunday morning and to have that kind of be the extent of our relationship with one another. We're also not co-workers who are just here to be forced to tolerate one another as we talk about how nice the weather is today. We are Christians who have been baptized, that's verse 13 there, baptized into one body altogether. So what that means as it relates to our spiritual gifts is that our gifts are not for ourselves. We are not to hoard our gifts as if we are spoiled children on Christmas morning. The gifts themselves are not even for us. Look at verse 7, back at the top. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So our gifts, they're given to us through the Holy Spirit, but they are for the common good of our church body. Mercy has my gift of teaching is not for me. I want to be honest with you, I spend anywhere between 30 and 50 hours a week working on these sermons, and I know some people are like, wow, that's a lot of time, maybe too much time, and even some local pastors will say to me and kind of advise me to spend less time preparing, but I guess like I'm just slow, like I don't know what you want me to do, like it takes me a long time to do this. (laughs) But here's what I want to communicate is that it is not for me. Like, the time that I spend researching, the time that I spend in my basement writing and editing and rehearsing and practicing, and this time here on a Sunday morning, as you come to church and you sit for about an hour while I preach the gospel to you, is for you. This is not for me. This is the way that God has built me and has gifted me to serve you, the church body. This gift is not for me. It's for the common good of our church family, the body of Christ. You all have gifts. You all have gifts. If you are a Christian, you have been made specifically by God and placed here strategically in place into this church body so that you can love and serve those around you with those gifts for the good of all of us. Being a member of a church is not community service. It's not like an organizational tactic to get buy-in. Church membership is God's design for the church. And when you don't engage as members of the church body, the body misses out and suffers. And you miss out and suffer. So don't deprive the body of your gifts and don't deprive yourself of the chance to live out your calling. My gift is not for me, but it sure does benefit me when I use it. Like, I love to preach. I love preparing to preach. I can't help myself. Like, I sit in my basement, and literally, like, I'm weeping over God's word because of how awesome it is and how excited I am to get to share it with you. I am often filled with joy, and I am so incredibly thankful that I get to have this opportunity to pour myself out for you in this way. Is it tiring? Yes. 
Do I get sick of reading commentaries? Absolutely. Uh, do I get stuck often and, and have to wrestle to understand things? And is that sometimes discouraging? Yes. But I love it. I love it. It is my favorite way to worship God, and I feel truly alive when I do it. So therein lies the beauty. As I pour myself out for the good of the church body, I myself experience the joy of being an active member of the body. And so my hope and my prayer this week as I've been preparing is that you too, all of you, would be able to discern your gifts that you would be able to have opportunities to use those gifts here in the church body and that you, as a crucial part of the church body, would then experience joyful worship for what God has allowed you to do and what God has made you to do as members of the church. So I want to end with this. We are all together here as one body. Sometimes we don't want to be a part of that body, Sometimes we wish that other people in the body weren't a part of the body. Sometimes we don't feel like we have anything to contribute to the body. But if you are a Christian, you have been baptized into the body with one another like members of a family. So that's what Paul says earlier. If the nose says, oh, I'm not a part of the body, it doesn't change the fact that they are. So you are a member whether or not you are realizing and recognizing it right now. Paul uses the metaphor of a body on purpose. Not just to communicate this idea of variation and unity, of many different parts being joined together as one, but the illustration goes further. We are not just any body. Look at verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The body of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18, we see this. He is, this is speaking of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. So I don't know about you, but I care somewhat about my body. I don't see my hand as expendable. (laughs) I don't want to give up this hand. Even my pinky toe. Like, I'm going to take care of that pinky toe. We, We are protective and reasonably careful with our bodies, and we should be. But here's what I want you to hear. We are not merely members of Jesus's organizational church. We are members of his body in a very literal sense. Like, that is the level of intimacy and closeness that we have with Jesus individually, which means that he will take care of us. He will take care of us even more than he would if we were just his friends or just his brothers and sisters. He will take care of us and love us and lead us and nurture us and guard us as if we are his own literal flesh and blood. He will defend us with the same zealousness and passion and power as he would defend himself. For we, as Christians, have been made one with Christ. And so when we feel vulnerable or afraid, 
when we have weeks like this past week, we can rest assured by many truths, and one of which is that the SBC is not the head of this church. Christ is the head of this church. And while the world around us might threaten us, make us afraid, they might threaten our families, King Jesus, as the head, will himself guard us and protect us and keep us his body for all of eternity at any cost. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Jesus broke his body in order for us to become a part of his body. That's the cost of church membership. Sooner or later, Lord willing, you will realize the seriousness and the spiritual significance of you being an active and engaged member of the church. And that realization will allow you to serve and to be alive, using your giftings and experiencing joy like you never have before if you have never been an engaged member of the church body. And in that process, you will also experience protection and reprieve and refuge as a member of God's body. The body needs you. Your brothers and sisters need you. We all need each other. So what are we waiting for, Mercy House? If you want to become a member of this church body, let us know by filling out the card right in the seat in front of you. Like we mentioned during the super long announcements, there is a Meet Mercy House next Saturday morning. So come to Meet Mercy House. And as you take communion, take time to consider before the Lord, what would it look like for you to live now as part of Jesus' body alongside your brothers and sisters? Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us so much that you give us one another in church body. God, thank you for the ways that I have been ministered to by members of this church body. Thank you for how you made each and every person in this room uniquely, distinctly them with their giftings and their experiences so that they can edify and encourage and build up their brothers and sisters around them. God, help us as a church to do this. We don't do it perfectly, God. We don't do it maybe even well. Help us, God, to mature and to grow. Help us to identify people in their giftings and their callings. Help us to make space and opportunities for people to serve. But Lord, help us in our hearts realize the significance and the cost of being members of your body. Help us to see beyond our own experience and our own eyes, to see how we can love and serve our brothers and sisters and not just how we can be served ourselves. Lord, we can't do this without you. So Lord, would you transform each of us, God, and mature our hearts in you. God, thank you that you are the head. Lord, let that give us comfort and peace, knowing that whatever storm we're experiencing in the world around us right now, 
You are the head. You are in control. You know what you're doing. Help us to trust you, especially in this season. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.